0: From the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe
1: Files, with your host, David Axelrod. One of the heroes of last year's Biden campaign was a name you may not know, but he's one of America's great pollsters and strategists. And part of what makes John Anzalone so good at what he does is his own rich story. I sat down with him yesterday and had a conversation about that and American politics today. Here it is. John Anzalone, I think that full disclosure is necessary here. We're very long and old friends. So if I call you Anzo throughout this conversation, people will understand. (laughs) I'm not getting impertinent or anything, but... uh, no, I
2: listen. I've been somewhat reflective this week, knowing I was going to do this because if you remember, we first met when I was a literally a senior in college. David yeah. Wilhelm introduced us. Yes. Um, you know, you you guys were just coming off that '84 big victory for Paul Simon. And I, he sent me out in 1986, and and I spent a weekend with you and Forrest Claypool, and I think you guys were doing Pat Quinn for treasurer and some state attorney <laughs> yeah. races, and. You know we went bowling and I was in the you know the the parade for uh, uh, St Patty's Day, and so you know this is kind of full circle for me, and so I you know it, one, I've always not only appreciate your friendship but your mentorship, and you were a big part of my career, so this is this is a big deal going from senior in college to where we are <laughs> today.
1: Yeah, you've come a long way, my friend, as we kind of knew you you would, but let let's talk about I'm sitting here in Michigan. I'm um, probably about uh, 15 miles from where you grew up in St. Joseph, Michigan. Talk about the Anzalone's How did, how did they get to St. Joe and where they come from? As
2: you know, St. Joe is kind of what I always, uh, no minorities. The Anzalone's were probably considered minorities because we're Italian-American.
1: But we should point out that across the river in Benton Harbor, you have, I assume even then, that was a largely black community. Yeah, you had that's... these twin cities separated by a bridge. Alex Kotlowitz wrote a great book about these two cities and how distinct they were from each other uh, yeah. a few years ago.
2: And listen, we, know we were part of the white flight. I mean, you know, I was born in 1964. My parents had three kids. My dad was a long-haul trucker. He was a teamster, local seven out of, um, <clears throat> out of uh, Kalamazoo. And, you know, we were part of the white flight. They moved in 1968 to this little suburb, um, little township of St. Joseph.
1: Moved from? Uh, from, from, Benton Detroit- Harbor, from,
2: Benton oh, from Benton Harbor. Oh, from Benton Harbor, yeah. you know, there was a little Sicilian enclave, if you will. A lot of our relatives didn't move and then stayed in, in Benton Harbor fairplane and sent their kids to the Catholic school. My dad and mom moved. In some ways, it was a saving grace for us. He got disabled at a very young age. And so the Anzalonians basically struggled economically. You know, I was a free lunch kid in a what you know is a, a really rich town of St. Joe. It's a company town, right? Whirlpool, KitchenAid, et cetera, Bendix, things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, free lunch kid, you know, food stamps at times, um, uh, but w- was in a little cocoon of a kind of a middle class environment uh, and a really good school system, right? And, uh, but I mean, for us, it was, it was just economically struggling, you know, the entire time I grew up.
1: What happened to your dad? How did he become disabled?
2: Yeah. So, you know, he was 35 years old and he had a heart attack, uh, and, you know, open heart surgery at 36, uh, told, they said he wouldn't live until, you know, wouldn't make it to 40 and he made it to 83. He was a bull stubborn. Huh? He was a stubborn guy. And, you know, that brought him out of the truck. I mean, he was somewhat. You know, demasculated by that, um, and so my dad worked in kind of the, the the black market economy. You know, I mean, he would drive people and drive trucks. Uh, you know, he he was kind of Steve was known as the guy who drove, you know, you to uh, O'Hare Airport, right, or drove a short bed truck of you know pallets, you know, for a local company, all under the table. I mean, his entire life from basically. 37, 38, when he got back on his feet um, to when to when he passed, you know, was kind of this, you know, this underground economy that is that's really out there. And uh, my mother, who was a homemaker, um, you know, went to work and was kind of the backbone of our family. Um, And the biggest day, I mean, you know, when I reflect on my childhood, you know, she worked menial jobs, um, but she had a cousin who worked for the county uh, and she got a job at the county mental hospital. Facility and that meant health insurance, and it was just literally a saving grace for our family. And so, you know, had a lot of economic struggles. But when I think about the fact that mom had a job with health insurance, which was a huge deal for our family, and I was in a school system that was one of the top in the country uh, and was able to nurture me, uh, and it was my safe haven as well, Um, you know, uh, we were really lucky. And uh, most low income people. Don't have don't have those dual things, quite frankly, uh, and and that meant a lot.
1: One of the reasons that when we started the Obama campaign, that I reached out for you to join the team, was that you're not a Washington guy. You've spent not that much of your life in that town. We'll get to the fact that you're down in Alabama. Yeah improbably, and you've lived there for decades uh, and really kind of built your business out of there. But, you know, when I was doing this work, I always kind of pitched the fact that I wasn't from Washington. And when I was in the White House, I really felt like I was losing my feel for what was going on in the country because the conversation in Washington is so much different. So how did these experiences of yours kind of shape how you approach the work that you do?
2: Yeah, it was really important, Um, not only how I grew up. um, And there's, you know, I mean, that gives me a perspective that I think is really important. But interestingly, I've always lived in actually fairly Republican territory, uh, you know, modern to conservative territory. I mean, you know, I grew up with David Stockman as my congressman.
1: Who was uh, Ronald Reagan's budget director, ultimately, famously.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, that area really embraced kind of new conservatism. They were always kind of chamber of commerce Republicans. I mean, Fred Upton came back and and took it away from Mark Stiljander, who was a Christian right congressman after uh, Stockman left. Um, But, you know, St. Joseph wasn't too far from Holland when you had the Dutch reform and the Calvinist really way before kind of the Christian right. You know, when I was on the campaign trail, I always, again, kind of lived in, uh, um, you know, Republican areas, including. You know, when I was down there with Wilhelm in Appalachia, but living outside D.C., you know, uh, in Alabama, it is improbable. Um, I always felt that at first I thought it was my death knell. Uh, And as the the longer I was there, I I realized that being outside of D.C. and kind of the vortex and the narrative that gets sucked into that and living next to real uh, people and real voters. And as a researcher going all across the country doing you know, focus groups and talking to real people. Right. You just get you just get you understand kind of what's important and what's not. You separate the wheat from the chaff. And more importantly, whether you were in Chicago um, or you were whether I was, you know, in Montgomery. The fact is, is that we weren't every day being sucked into the insider narrative that I think that you get in D.C. And I I came to realize it made me a better consultant uh, because of that. I mean, I'm a rare rare consultant, and and this would surprise everyone. I don't watch cable TV. I mean, I've never seen the Rachel Maddow show uh, the Jake Tapper show. I talk to them. I mean, like, I watch Lester Holt at night with my wife and my kids. You know, I read a lot of newspapers, but I try just, you know, I try not to get sucked into the Twitter world, et cetera, because I think that it can, it can kind of warp your perspective for clients.
1: I will try not to take this personally that you don't watch cable TV as someone who spent some time. Here. Well, we watch you
2: on election night. So, I mean, the kids like, you know, Jack's like still says, yeah, well, you know, there's Mr. David. He has those, you know, <laughs> bulls tickets.
1: <you> know, <laughs> he's got his, he's his, got his uh, priorities. Yeah. Aligned properly. So just before we leave your, your growing up, your folks were, I think they both were teamsters, right? They your were. Mom, yeah. And, and so labor was a big, thing but not necessarily politics right I mean your dad was like a Jimmy Hoffa guy
2: there was like no you know conversations around the the kitchen table you know etc there there was two things that were really interesting my dad had a great line but this was later on you know this wasn't like during growing up but he he, you know once he he was really disappointed and worried that I got into politics he like knew I was good at math and things like that he thought I should be an accountant Right. Or, or an insurance salesman. You know, like yeah. He just wanted that professional life. He knew people who, you know, made a good living, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but when I started doing politics, he got really into it. And he, he came to every campaign that I was, you know, you know, he came to Iowa and he would stay. He would stay for a week and two weeks at a time when we did Lautenberg in 88. I mean, Carvel loves my dad because my dad was there for two weeks driving a short bed truck you know, you know, driving, uh, driving literature around. And so my dad said one thing about Jimmy Hoff. He said, I didn't know I was a Democrat until Jimmy Hoff had told me so. But that never came out growing up, kind of that we were Democrats who weren't. My grandfather, who for 52 years had the shoe repair shop, he was a cobbler in St. Joe, Michigan. All I remember is that every every Sunday they'd come over, he would have that huge sun Times right in his lap. And he he hated Ronald Reagan. He didn't think he was for the
1: people. But that's pretty unusual, right, because uh, your folks, your family are sort of the profile of the at least the northern voter who has trended away from the Democratic Party. Exactly.
2: I mean, Sicilian Americans are pretty conservative to begin with. I don't have a lot of relatives who, you know, are rah-rah and pulling the Democratic uh, lever. I mean, I hear a lot of feedback about, for example, Gretchen Whitmer, who is a client. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, from my uncles and, and and things like that. But it again, it was it did give me a foundation. Um, one of my first jobs out of college was with the AFL CIO, David Wilhelm. You know, I worked for Citizens for Tax Justice.
1: David, so you keep mentioning Wilhelm and you and I. I mean, David Wilhelm is a very dear friend of both yes. of ours. Uh, he and I worked together in the uh, in the 80s and 90s. He ultimately became he managed the Bill Clinton campaign, became chairman of the Democratic National uh, committee. But w- what's interesting to me is you met him, you went to Kalamazoo College. And it seems to me just looking at the timing that you may have been like it where you was that a job at the FLCO or was it an internship? Kalamazoo College back in the day, you had to do a
2: senior individualized project, you had to literally get off campus for a semester and do a thesis. And I had read a article in the New Republican magazine, by Bob McIntyre from Citizens yes. for Tax Justice about tax reform. And I called and did a cold call to Citizens for Tax Justice and David Wilhelm answered the phone. And he said, come on over. And we talked and he gave me an internship. And not only, it was, it was during the 1986 tax reform fight. I mean, it was, it was Rostenkowski. And so I actually deferred going back to college and stayed another semester. Uh, and it was a, just a tremendous experience. And even then he kind of knew the Biden thing might happen, hence why he probably yeah. sent me out for a weekend. Yeah.
1: What's interesting to me is I, I read some quotes of yours based on your data about this whole issue of taxes. And, you know, Democrats have become gun shy about talking about taxes. Uh, but your argument based on your data is that there is actually a really strong argument to make about tax fairness, that the system is unfair to the average person uh, and skewed in favor of uh, wealthy, uh, elites. Uh, and that stuff you were probably writing and thinking about as a kid intern back in the eighties.
2: No doubt about it. In 86, we put in 87. We put out this famous, well, actually 85 and 86, we put out these famous studies about the top corporations that didn't pay any federal taxes. And it got Ronald Reagan's attention. I mean, if you read Donald Reagan's book, it actually got Ronald Reagan's attention that GE was paying no taxes, who, if I be- re- remember, he was a spokesman for Brett Reagan at mm-hmm. one point. Yeah,
1: right. The GE theater. Yeah,
2: it actually, you know, uh, at the time, Tip O'Neill, rossinkowski Packwood, et cetera. You know, it's hard to imagine that a Republican president was instrumental in a bipartisan agreement on tax reform, but he was. And what we heard pre-pandemic in focus groups is what we're hearing even more intensely now is that the middle class is kind of pissed off taking the burden right they're not anti-wealthy they're not anti-corporation they're anti not paying your fair share and they don't feel that those at the top and big corporations pay their fair share they they feel that they use their power and their you know tax attorneys and your cpas etc to kind of skirt paying the the taxes but what's maybe more important is that whether it was during the biden campaign or now When we test economic policy, the one that rises to the top is making those over 400,000 big corporations uh, pay more taxes. So it's not even thought of with the average American as a tax policy. It's thought of as an economic policy. And a majority of people actually believe that the economy will be stronger and grow more uh, if we um, uh, put tax fairness into the system. And I think that's what's lost on uh, a lot of congressional Democrats because Republicans have done a tremendous job in the last 30 years branding us on taxes. And we have an opportunity now because the middle class is pissed off about this on tax fairness to kind of control the narrative and push off of the Republicans because they're about they're about to vote no on everything, um, which means they're protecting the wealthy and the big corporations from tax fairness. And I think it's a great narrative for us Going into the 2022 elections,
1: it is now an article of faith that Republicans won't vote to raise taxes, any taxes on anybody, uh, but particularly on the on the wealthy. But uh, in this infrastructure proposal that is being negotiated in Congress, one of the paid for is give the IRS more money to go after tax cheaters at the top. Uh, and recover some of those, many, uh, you know, that that rich tr- tr- uh, tranche of dollars. There, uh, Republicans are now trying to rally against some Republicans rally against this on that basis. Right, and seventy percent
2: of Americans, you know, agree with it. Right, I yeah. mean, like they they want more money. Um, you know, again, this is a branding for the last thirty years on the IRS. But the fact is, is that you know, uh, real. Middle-class working families, you know, support these type of initiatives. You know,
1: yeah, because they pay their taxes.
2: Because they pay their taxes, and right. you know, again, I mean, yeah. whether it was in 1986 when we put out the big uh, studies showing the corporations that don't pay their fair share, or literally a month ago when ProPublica showed the top what 55 corporations that don't pay their fair share, including the Amazons of the world, um, you know, that's a problem. And you know, big tech has has a, plenty of problems in D.C. With the American public, it's actually bigger that they just don't pay any
1: taxes. We'll talk more about this. But you went to Iowa. You mentioned David Wilhelm went. He affiliated with a young senator from Delaware named Joe Biden. <laughs> this was back in 1987. Yeah. Toward the 88 election. And you went to Iowa to work in the field for Biden. And that's when you first met Joe Biden. Yeah. Talk about that.
2: It was an amazing experience. I always say that Joe Biden was my best first boss and my, you know, hopefully my best last boss in politics. You know, I went out there in February of '87 before David could go out there. I drove out in my Chevy Celebrity and picked up a six-pack and slept in our old friend Bruce Keppel's uh, basement. May rest in peace. It was one of the. I knew immediately this is what I should be doing. This was my first campaign, and it was me and one other guy, Bruce Keppel, and. Joe Biden. I mean, like he, you know, we were putting together events, and he was coming in with Tim Ridley again, may he rest in peace, uh, and people from uh, the the national campaign. But it was really just a couple of us putting it together. So, you know, we just got all of this um, contact with Joe Biden, and he just treats people so well. Like he is a good boss because you feel like you're the most important person in the room when you're with Joe Biden. Um, and it was a fantastic experience. And, you know, again, I mean, this has been a 34-year journey uh, with, uh, with now the president of the United States. But you're, what most people, I think, don't realize about Joe Biden is that you're, you become part of the family. It's Jill Biden. It's Valerie Biden. At the time, it was Hunter. The kids were young, but they would come out. Uh, back then, it was Ted Kaufman and people like that. And, you know, Donald, you become part of the Biden family, and, and that's important.
1: Well, we should point out that Ted Kaufman, Donalyn, these people are still around. They're still around. They're yeah. still essential to Biden. That campaign ended in an unhappy way. Yeah. That was, uh, Biden ended up uh, using language that came from a, a speech that was inspired by a speech by Neil Kinnock, a British politician, without attributing it, which apparently he had done in he other places. He had yeah. Yeah. And this became what passes for scandal in American politics. And he was forced to withdraw from the race as a young guy. How devastating was that to be committed to a guy and then watch the ship go down like that?
2: You know, when you're young, you don't think that you're going to get over things like that. It, you know, we we sat there with quart beers on the corner of a quick trip and, you know, uh, uh, and drank a lot for 48 hours. And again, you know, in a lot of the. Lot of the Why the, is that the, the solution
1: to everything in your right. stories? Yeah. I don't understand I, you know, that.
2: Well, you know, when you're you know, 24 <laughs> years old, it, it certainly is. But it was a tremendous group of people. I mean, you know, you know them, right? The Larry Grizzlanos of the world, yeah, the Jeff Lynx of the friends. world. I mean, yeah. it was just, it was an amazing group of people. A lot of them went over to your team, to Paul yeah. Simon at the
1: time. Paul Simon, my old client, was running in that same race. So I spent a lot of time in Iowa at that time.
2: That's right. And and I was thinking about that this week as well. I don't think that there's enough written, quite frankly, about how Paul Simon exceeded expectations in that race. I mean, people don't really understand.
1: Yeah, We should point out to those who who aren't, Uh, who are of a different generation. We're not talking about the singer. We're talking about a congressman from Illinois who uh, looked like Orville Redenbacher, had big jug ears and horn-rimmed glasses and a big, uh, a Southern twang and uh, wore a bow tie and was really in, in, in what was in the Reagan era. I mean, I think one of the reasons why Paul got some take up, other than that he was a very decent, uh, radiated decency was—he uh, was so not a media guy right. in a media in the Reagan age. You know, Reagan was an actor; he was polished. He knew how to deliver a line, and Paul was just uh, just folks, and I think that helped him.
2: And the media had taken down Gary Hart and Joe Biden, and so there was something incredibly authentic about Paul Simon. Most people probably don't realize he came from Southern Illinois. He was. You know, he came from a real rural area. Yes. Uh, I mean, I don't know whether you'd you'd say he had a prairie populism to him, but he had a populism
1: that I think resonated. He was a guy who fought for civil rights, even though he came from a town that was closer to Little Rock than... Chicago. He fought for political reform in Illinois, which was actually an act of physical courage at the time right. that he came up in politics. He was a very principled and decent guy. Were you one of the guys who moved over to our campaign then? I didn't, I, you know, and, and uh, because David
2: had this crazy idea, David Willem, to go home and run for Congress in oh, Appalachia, right. Ohio. Yes. And, you know, so I, you know, I was, I was going to go with David and I had, you know, second thoughts thinking, oh, I'm going to miss out on something. I think it was definitely, you know, a FOMO moment, you know, being with Grizz and everyone else. But then we just, we packed up the car and we moved to Athens, Ohio. And I think one of the best things that ever happened to David Wilhelm and I was we lost the primary, (laughs) we literally lost the congressional primary. I went on to be political director in 88 for Dave, for um, uh, Frank Lautenberg.
1: Yeah. I was running for the Senate in New Jersey
2: who at the time was the campaign manager was this guy named James Carville and, and the communications director was a guy named, you know, Paul Begala. So that's a whole other story. Yeah. And then, you know, David went on eventually um, to uh, run the, uh, the daily campaign. And so- For mayor in
1: Chicago, yeah.
2: It was a great experience to do that and to manage. I, I, it was my first opportunity to manage. And so the skills that you learned, you know, even just being with Wilhelm was fantastic.
1: We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. So how'd you make your way into polling?
2: Well... It's funny because, you know, I went on to do the political director in the campaign
1: for Wattenberg's
2: reelect, which in 88 was the number one race in the country, ran against Pete Dawkins.
1: Ancelone is a good Jersey name, by the way.
2: Yeah. Listen, I, I you know, it was amazing because literally half of the county chairs were paisans. And it was just, you know, the first thing and the first thing literally. You know, James came up to me the first day and said, hey, as long as to get to Trenton and deal with those labor people. That's all he said. Those were the instructions, uh, who was also an Italian American. And it was a great fit and it was a great campaign and with a lot of talented people. Um, yeah. But I went on to do the mayor's race uh, in Pittsburgh in 1989 and then the and then the governor's race uh, in uh, uh, 1990. And like a lot
1: of people. Governor's race in. In Alabama. Oh, in Alabama. The, in Alabama right. was
2: 1990. Yes. And, like a lot of people I was getting married and then you think I got to get off the campaign trail. And back then you didn't have a whole lot of choices. You were either going to go and try to find a media firm to hire you or a polling firm, or maybe a direct mail firm. And at the time I had done two straight races with Doak and Trump who again, big firm back then. Yes. Uh, and I was very lucky to be able to work. I've had an incredible, I mean, the the, list of people I've been able to work with, we, you know, is kind of amazing. Um, and, you know, it was an off cycle. Uh, so that was 1990, the governor's race. Uh, so it was 91. Media firms don't hire people. I had had uh, this um, relationship with Greg Schneider and Keith Frederick, who had done the polling for Don Siegelman in 1990 the governor's candidate race. Candidate in Alabama. Yeah. And, and they offered me a job and, and I took it. I had always enjoyed Uh, The numbers, uh, I always kind of poured through the baselines and the crosstabs.
1: Yeah, you said you you, you were good at math. Yeah, Yeah,
2: I mean, you know, it was a natural thing for me. But I think that when you're a young guy on the campaign trail, everyone fancies themselves as someday becoming a media consultant. And I had this great relationship with not only Bob Strum and David Doak, but they had a young team of John Max.
1: Who went on to become a uh, joke writer for Jay Leno, yeah. yeah.
2: And then Steve McMahon, who, you know, runs Purple Strategies. And so, you know, just an incredible amount of talent out there. Not that there isn't now, there is. But I do think the trajectory now is to go do a race and to become a consultant. I did five campaigns before I even thought I was worthy to become a consultant. And then I apprenticed for three years with uh, Greg Schneiders, who was just a just a brilliant guy, and, and Keith Frederick, who's a really good pollster. Before, again, I really thought I could, you know, um, start my own firm. So I had, you know, seven or eight years in politics before I thought I could start my own firm.
1: And you did, and you married a woman in Alabama and you, you built a firm from there. Everyone said it couldn't be done. I, I, you know,
2: 1994, not a great year to start a firm and move to the South because you you know, we lost, um, Congress. Um, but I had, a, a, you know, a handful of good Nothing like
1: buying low.
2: Yeah. Right. You know, I lost Buddy Darden that year, but won Nathan Deal. And then Nathan Deal, like three months later, changed changes parties. That was devastating. <laughs> and so, um, but I had Mike Doyle uh, and Frank Mascara and, you know, had these great relationships, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, in Chicago. We had done some stuff. Louis Gutierrez, one of my first clients, mm-hmm. you know, uh, John Cullerton, who became... Senate president, one of my longest clients, uh, uh, et cetera. But, you know, to be honest, back then I felt pretty sorry for myself. You know, I went down there to raise kids, um, was divorced, you know, was raising young kids, et cetera, um, and thought I would, quite frankly, be a bottom feeder um, for for most of it. And, and you know, when you came and asked me, and again, you know, a big point in my career to be part of the Obama polling team, that was 2008 that's 14 years after I started my firm. I mean, and, and we had picked off a lot of Republican seats that no one thought could be won, not just in the South, but other places as well. And so, you know, I think I probably had to work a little harder and it probably took me a little longer, um, to get where I needed to be, but it was a, you know, it was, it was really a great
1: journey. One of the standards that I applied in putting together the, uh, Obama team was I tried as much as possible to choose consultants who did not work in Washington. You know, Joel Benenson was up in yep. New York. Who did, uh, David Binder. Who Binder, did our, right. Did our qualitative research. Brilliant guy. But he was based in California. You know, we grabbed you and others uh, whose sensibilities were very much outside the beltway. And that was what a, an insurgent campaign of the sort we were building required and, and needed. It's also what we believed. So you were perfect for that team. Eight years later, you polled for Hillary Clinton in her campaign. Tell me about that experience and what you learned from it.
2: You know, it, it's one of those things where it's the good and the bad, right? I mean, it was a stressful two years. 08 was such a joyous kind of experience, Right. The elects in 12 is always different than eight, so you can't yes. compare the two. Personal relationship with Hillary, and you've worked with her, was fantastic. I mean, she can be very much a mother hen on the personal
1: level. And warm and funny and elements that people rarely saw.
2: Rarely saw. And, you know, people said the same thing, if you remember, about in 2004, about, uh, or, or 2000, about Al Gore, you know, on the personal side. And so the personal relationship was good. I think the strategic relationship was good. Um, It wasn't necessarily a campaign that clicked necessarily, like with the the strategic team and how things worked and uh, how you uh, interacted with the campaign.
1: Someone told me there were that when you had strategy calls, there were sometimes 75 people on the call.
2: Well, I don't think it it was certainly the inner circle was was smaller than that. But you could have really large calls, which, quite frankly, is a byproduct of today's environment. I mean, we can do Senate races where sometimes there's 30 people on the call, uh, which is crazy because back when we were really doing stuff, you know, you had a campaign manager, a media consultant, a pollster, maybe a male person and maybe a comms person. And things got, got decisions got made very quickly. Right. And strategically.
1: Speed kills in politics and uh, yeah. speed. Therefore speed boats are better than battleships
2: again, just the diagnosis of of that campaign is that hindsight is twenty twenty. That's always, uh, without a doubt, we were in a new age where, you know, in 2012, Larry really, I think, understood.
1: Larry Grizzolano, who was my partner uh, and my strategic partner in the campaign. Right.
2: So he, I think, was brilliant in understanding the nuances of how polling was important and how this nascent analytics was important. And he didn't let the equilibrium get off. And I think that in 16, it was a completely different world where analytics really did. And I don't say this like super critical, but it was just part of it. It's like, it's part of the evolution of campaigns, just like digital is an important part of paid communication now. But I do think that analytics probably drove uh,
1: too many decisions. Campaigns evolved like commercial advertising, and almost everything else in our lives. As big data became more available, in 2008 we had a few people who were doing analytics. Dan Wagner was a, a guy who did it. By 2012, we I think we had 54, right? You know, analysts under Wagner's direction just combing through big data to create models for each voter predictive models for each voter and doing other things. But we did try and strike a balance between polling, analytics. We tried to see if there were conflicts between them and how to resolve them and so on. Uh, you don't want to put your, you know, all your eggs in one right. basket. And what you're saying is you thought there was too much of a reliance on analytics in 2016 for Hillary.
2: Larry Grislano had a great take on this, which was, he said, all the analytics people believe they are pollsters and all the pollsters believe they understand analytics and neither of them are right right and he was a great quarterback in making sure that both tools were being used in an incredibly efficient way right and so um i think that there's a blurring now and i actually think that the biden campaign got it right uh becca siegel who is this just brilliant young woman who um, ran the analytics shop. It was much smaller, I think, than, uh, than uh, 2016. But she was a key part of the strategic team, right? Um, and I, I, think that they, I think that they got the mix right. I still think that there's work to do in um, melding uh, polling and analytics and, and kind of working as a team. Um, but you just want to make sure that one doesn't, uh, um, again, um, you know, drive, uh, too much of uh, of the decision making, but at the end of the day, I also think that just the autopsy of the Hillary campaign is that there were kind of a couple camps, and one of the camps was all you have to do is make Donald Trump too big of a risk, uh, and the other camp was you know we need to do more to clarify. Um, and compete on the economy and clarify the economic agenda. And you'll, you'll see that's almost all we did in 2020. 80% of our ads were positive. 80% of our ads laid out Joe Biden's economic vision, his COVID vision as well, the healthcare, et cetera. Um, and, you know, we believe from the very beginning that we needed to go after Donald Trump's strength. He was the business guy. People gave him credit for um, uh, building a strong economy. He had a pandemic and people were, you know, he was the right guy to do it again. And we went right after that and we competed on that economic vision and agenda.
1: It's clear from what you're saying, which camp you were in back in 2016. Yeah. And
2: Joel was in it too. Don't get yeah, me Joel wrong. I mean, was, yeah, Joel Yeah. And I think that at the end of the day, it all would have worked out had Comey not come back and basically made her as big a risk on October 28th as Mm. Biden. And we saw, like, we didn't have a whole lot of research after October 28. Think about it. Binder did a few groups and you kind of saw it, right? It's like, oh, well, you know, she's going to be indicted and she's going to be under investigation. And so, you know, she's as big as risk as as Trump and people like, we'll just give him a chance. I mean, there was a dynamic change.
1: There was a a polling autopsy that just did, which I'm sure you read, One of the things that they said that was interesting to me, and this is something that Joel Benenson said right after the election, there was a significant third-party vote in 2016. So people who thought they were both risky, they had a fail-safe. And a lot of those people fled to the third-party candidates. Those people who voted third-party in 2016, just to confirm the theory that this hurt Hillary, voted overwhelmingly for Biden. Right. In 2020. So that was a factor as well. There was another thing that happened in that campaign, which was pollsters screwed up. I mean, yeah. polling was off. And I want you to talk about that. What lessons the polling industry and you derived? Because I saw, you know, a lot of it was based on analytics, but, you know, there, people were pretty confident going into that yeah. election.
2: Fair. Absolutely. I mean,
1: we learned a couple things.
2: One is we learned we better pull our head either out of the stand or out of our asses, <laughs> that this is a changing industry and it's really hard to get quality interviews.
1: Because people's communications habits had changed. You used to call landline. Well, just explain the problem. Yeah, yeah?
2: Right. But again, I don't want to blame it just on the fact that it's hard to reach people on landlines or sell or online. We are also in an environment because the problems that we saw in 2016 and 2020 were completely different, meaning that we saw that, for example, we were having trouble getting not non college white interviews, but the right type of non college white interviews. Like, for example, something as simple as we were getting too many people in the service industry who, if you're non college, you know, uh, you, you could be in a service industry where your lifestyle is very much like a college person, right? You see what I'm saying? Like, you could be a manager of a dental office or whatever it may be, versus those manufacturing jobs, agricultural jobs, the jobs like my dad had. Your a, dad, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, et cetera. And so we really under, now we ask different questions. We make sure that we're getting the right type of non-college educated um, uh, interviews. And we also saw that in kind of non-urban areas, we were ha- we weren't getting the right type of interviews. For example, in a uh, a county like Jasper County, Iowa, right where. And maybe we're getting interviews in the county seat, but not in the rural area. And education had a part of that. And so we really worked hard to make sure that we were getting the right type of non-college educated uh, interviews in that intervening period. But I would add this to that, too. It wasn't just how difficult the to get interviews, but also the trust in entities is high. And so we now ask the demographic question, really fairly simple. You generally trust most people. You generally don't trust most people. And there's a trust problem that also goes into the equation of us having trouble getting interviews.
1: So what you're saying is that people really don't trust the person on the other line. Right. And it, and it's not just pollsters. And so they don't necessarily want to share their views. And that, that makes sense in a polarized yeah. environment like this where right. people – People really prosecute you for your political views, so right. and, and this isn't like, oh, they just don't trust pollsters. They don't trust
2: anyone. They don't trust the media, they don't trust the government, they don't trust you know, they don't trust uh, institutions. Uh, and so that is a problem. And so again, you know we're doing what we call text to web, and we're doing a lot of interviews in a multimodal. We're getting some landlines, maybe twenty percent. Then we're getting cell phones maybe we're getting 35 40% and then we're getting what we call text to webs which means you're getting a link to a poll on your cell phone but you don't have the bias of an interviewer you don't ha- right you don't you don't have that that uh, social desirability bias you don't have the pressure of again that person um, you're doing it on your own and so again we we're, we're doing things differently
1: all this is expensive
2: it's expensive it takes a lot of time on the back end side, to be able to take data from all these different modes uh, is difficult. But I do want to mention one thing that, and again, my partner Brian Stryker, who you know from Chicago, yes. who did a lot of ROMs work, had a had a really amazing uh, analysis that he posted after the 2020. We were super excited when you're in like June and July of 2020. It's the pandemic; everyone's home. Our our production rates through the roof. It reminded us that of 1990 again. We're getting everyone to answer phones and we're thinking, wow, that is this is great. We're getting better data. Well, in some ways that came to bite everyone in the ass uh, again, because what we found is that where there were surges in October, guess what? Up north, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, places like that, um, people were staying home, but we're deep into the pandemic. But the pandemic is politicized now. Masks, no masks, things like that. We're not at the vaccination stage. Who's staying home and following the rules? Democrats. And so the pandemic actually caused in this strange byproduct where we were getting too many Democratic interviews because of who was staying home and actually answering uh, interviews. And so he has this great chart that kind of shows the you know the bias. Uh, probably caused by you know people at, at staying yeah. at home
1: because even though you say that the problems were different the effect was the same which was there were surges of trump voters who'd simply were missed we're,
2: you're never going to get
1: i mean polls are not the greatest tool for assessing potential turnout anyway right but, they aren't
2: but here's but, what we always here's the other thing that i learned from 2016 was that hillary got what she polled. i mean flat out And Mm -hmm. so we learned that and we knew that Biden was going to get what he pulled. And, and, you know, General Malley never asked what the margin was. It was always, where are we? And so we had to be 50 and 51. And where we had Biden was what he got and drove our, you know, our um, electoral map. I mean, we knew at the, you know, at the fairly end that North Carolina and Ford just weren't going to happen because. He wasn't at that 50 or 51 percent level that allowed Jen O'Malley to move, move um, resources where to Georgia, which we never had Biden below 50 in Georgia.
1: I will say that you were consistent in all our conversations leading up to the election. You were you were not uh, sanguine about Florida. You were not sanguine about uh, North Carolina, states in which you've worked quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, But you were you were hopeful about Georgia. Yeah. In fact, I, I think you were spot on state by state. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. Let me ask you something. We talked earlier about, you know, you have an expertise in states that are, are hard states for Democrats. It seems to me they've become harder. And hard is the right word because people's views have hardened. What are the implications of that? Talk about the country that Joe Biden is now governing and the ability to actually, I mean, he's sitting there with a good approval rating 53% or so, 52, 53%, but it doesn't move just as Trump's approval rating didn't move much. And it feels like, you know, you're running in uh, in mud here.
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, I think that we are in, whether you're a Democrat or Republican president or controlled Congress, we, you know, we're living on the margins and we're going to live on the margins for a long time, right? I mean, it's really hard to imagine. Like, Biden has a 60% job rating on handling the pandemic, you know, uh, but again, it's been a, basically a straight line, you know, 53, 54, 55, uh, a job rating. What's amazing is this job rating on the economy is above 50%. It's consistently been about 52%, which is a high correlation to success, yes. Yes. right? Uh, especially for, for a Democrat. Um, what we have a four, uh, seat margin is going to be a three seat margin in Congress. In We're dead even in, yeah, in, in the Senate. I mean, it's all about the margins. Um, and you just want to keep, uh, keep things on the margins.
1: Midterm elections. We've got redistricting. We've got the census. We've got the historic, I think it's only three times in like a hundred and something years when the party in power actually gained seats. I think the last time was maybe uh, 1998. It really doesn't sound like, a- I mean, my view is Democrats have a tremendous amount of wind in their face uh, going into 2022, particularly as it relates to the House. Spin me on why that is not true and why the momentum of Biden could uh, reverse the historical trend.
2: I wouldn't say the momentum of Biden. I would say what Biden is, is um, quite frankly, providing Congressional Democrats, in terms of action items, right? I mean, voters, I think we all agree, are incredibly transactional right now. They're not aspirational, right? Um, They're pissed off and they want to, you know, be rewarded for their work. They want opportunities in this economic recovery, and you know, I've said this before. Like Joe Biden is like the new Marvel action figure. Like he diagnoses a problem right? I mean like he he gets puts together a plan, he gets experts around him and he executes. Um, and I think this is his calling card. and you know if the infrastructure plan gets done, if the re- reconciliation with the American families plan gets done, he is setting Democrats up to really have a lot to run on about what they've done to help working families and small businesses and create an economy that creates opportunities for them now, There was a good story today um, in political about that with Sheehan in New Hampshire about, you know, it's not written enough. I don't think that we have something to run on and Republicans are going to be no, no, no on everything. And part of that no is protecting the wealthy and the big corporations. Now, at the same time, again, I don't want to be naive. What are the Republicans going to run on? It's not going to be on an economic agenda. It's not going to be on a healthcare agenda. It's going to be on critical race theory, on socialism, on violent crime, on the, uh, the border, on inflation, on voter fraud, et cetera.
1: Well, inflation is an economic issue, isn't it, John?
2: It is economic, but it's also one that, quite frankly, people tend to understand a little bit better than some of them. So I'm, I, I don't dismiss what you're saying at all.
1: I mean, you got to hope that inflation settles down as some of the many economists suggest yeah. it will. If it doesn't, that's an issue. I'm sure you guys are watching that as, as closely as you're watching your, your own polling. Right, but if
2: people are thriving economically, you know, again, they'll, they'll take that trade off. Again, understanding that you hope it settles down uh, and you hope that on the core things that people need. I mean, there's a great article today about how, you know, an entire... Percentage point of the increase in, in uh, um, uh, prices come from new and used cars. And so, mm-hmm. you know, will that stuff, once supply chains get uh, e- uh, evened out, uh, help? Hopefully so. Again, mm-hmm. it's, if we talk a year from now and people have a child care tax credit or maybe help with elderly care and have skills training and have expanded uh, um, health care, I mean, there's so many things that can help a working family again, succeed in this economy and feel like they're being rewarded for their hard work. Um, and so I think that's our, that is our argument here is that, you know, the Biden administration, and what Congress hopefully will do is setting Democrats up for a really strong narrative about how they're being impactful, uh, in helping their
1: constituents. You know, Biden uh, talks a lot about unity and, and, It was a tremendous counterpoint to Trump, the idea that we are one country, that we do have obligations to each other, and we do share in the burdens and bounties of the country, and we're one American community. I think that probably is a popular message with a lot of Americans, but not necessarily with the activists in either party.
2: Well, it's interesting because we went through this in the primary, and we had to kind of show that uh, even among Democratic primary voters— Um, compromise and working with the other party was incredibly intense and salient, right? And so there isn't a big turnoff with real voters.
1: Right. If you hang out on Twitter, you get a different story.
2: Right. A difference between real voters and with uh, insiders.
1: So his sitting down and patiently negotiating with the Republicans on this infrastructure bill has resonance. Absolutely. And
2: allow me to suggest that what he's done to include progressives also has resonance. Meaning that you know Bernie Sanders, who's the chair of the budget committee, has you know basically talked about the 3.5 trillion dollar package reconciliation package as historic and what it would mean to people.
1: Even though he offered a six trillion, yeah, he offered a six to trillion. To start, with. and so of course he, you know he he himself has taken some uh, shit from right. the left for for that. Joe uh, Biden has an incredible gut for where,
2: like, the American people uh, sit and stand on this stuff. And he has seen, and we've seen this in public polling, internal polling, uh, his numbers of being committed to bipartisanship is, you know, near 60%.
1: About Biden, you know, one of the things that always struck me working with him, one of the things that appealed to me was he does not convey what some Democrats do at times. He does not look down on anyone. He whether you work with your hands or your back or your farm or you I mean, he he uh, he affords people dignity and therefore, you know, and that has to do with him growing up in the environment that he grew up. Right. Uh but he they he conveys that and look, we all talk about the seven million vote margin, but he won by about 44,000 or so in three states. Could any, any of the other Democrats who were running in 2020, I, I was skeptical about Biden, let me just say, yeah, as much sure. as I love him, as much as I uh, enjoyed working with him, all the assets I saw in him, I thought the age thing was going to do him in. Now I'm wondering whether anybody else could have won in 2020. I think one of the keys to
2: him winning, one, I think he was really focused on a key message But also what we saw was, you know, quite frankly, that people did not think that he was a radical. They didn't think he was a socialist. They didn't think he was a flaming liberal. They thought he was a moderate, right? And I'm not so sure you can say that about any of the other leading candidates, right? Um, You know, uh, I think it potentially would have been a problem. I mean, if you think about Warren, if you think about Sanders, um, you know, I think it's just kind of hard to imagine because that trait of moderation was so important um, that in this political environment and knowing what we know about the the final outcome um, was actually going to happen. Now, you know, you have Klobuchar, you have Buttigieg, but it's just, again, it's really hard to play this out and, and think that that is going to be the end game.
1: Yeah. Were there times during that primary campaign? I mean, you You finished fourth in Iowa and fifth in New Hampshire. And you don't have to really be a political genius to calculate that that was not good. Uh, were uh, Were there times when you uh, were concerned about whether you could get over the hump here? Listen, I think that there's not enough talked about Nevada.
2: There was a pretty big margin between Sanders and Biden, but this campaign redoubled its efforts. Anita took control of the campaign. Anita she made this. some really quick decisions. She's a decision maker. Uh, we did some polling. We changed up our media strategy uh, in Nevada. Um, we were talking about uh, his fights against the NRA and guns. Remember that you know Mandalay yeah. Bay in October one. I you know had done Syslec, and so just coming in second in Nevada was really important. And at that point, you had Buttigieg and Klobuchar who were like on fire, like we're wow. on on we're on fire. And so we always believe that if we can get to the first real primary
1: um, that we would show,
2: yeah, South Carolina, that we would show people.
1: What if he had finished third in Nevada? I don't know.
2: I mean, you know, would that have changed, you know, what Clyburn does and stuff like that? I don't know.
1: The reason I ask is because these things turn on such quirky little things. If the Iowa caucuses had been called on the night of the Iowa caucuses and Buttigieg had been declared the winner. Might he have won? He only lost to Sanders by a small margin in New Hampshire. He might have won right. two primaries in a row. He finished yeah. third in Nevada. He might have finished second in Nevada.
2: Right. I mean, again, we're talking about, like, politics is, is, is on the margins, right? And well, I mean, this
1: is what we do, man.
2: What would happen if Mike Bloomberg had not been part of that Nevada debate?
1: I had this discussion with Howard Wilson the other day, Bloomberg's yeah. guy.
2: I think that basically what it would have meant is that Biden would have gotten the nomination. It just would have been a longer slog. I mean, people forget, I mean, my best day in the Biden campaign was, and I was with him, I traveled with him in Michigan for the primary. And again, Gretchen Whitmer is a client, et cetera. And, and is that Joe Biden not only won Michigan, he won every county, urban, suburban, Macomb, um, And, you know, just going back four years later where Sanders beat Hillary, that was our worst day in the primary. Right, right, right. Um, And so what my point being is that I think that a third place finish in Nevada, you know, Bloomberg doesn't uh, do the debate. And so he gets a better performance in Super Tuesday. We would have still put the numbers together. I think it would have been a longer slog.
1: Biden did four or five points better among Hillary Clinton than Hillary Clinton with non-college-educated white voters. He did significantly better among men. Uh, He did uh, significantly better by 12 points in the suburbs. Can Democrats count on that without a Biden?
2: Well, I think that, you know, you saw what happened in 2018, uh, especially in the suburbs, right? So you had that one big component of that, and with women. Uh, Now, a lot of that was a reaction against Trump. But I think that we again haven't we're competing on the economy and working families issues like we haven't in a long time. And I think that these are the issues um, not only for the suburbs, but it's mostly working class women. Let's be real. I mean, you know, we want to we wanna narrow the margins by a point or two or three points with working class men, but working class women, independent working class women, we have a real opportunity to move just ever so slightly, to put that puzzle together to win. And again, I think the components are there.
1: How much of Hillary's resistance, the resistance she met, is sexism? And I don't mean yeah. just among men, but among, among, among some, women. some women. I mean,
2: older women, generational women. Listen, the two best books I ever read to understand this is our friend, Jennifer Palmieri, who was communication mm-hmm. director for Obama in the White House and for Hillary in the uh, campaign, you know, is, again, understanding the gender dynamics with women candidates, with women elected officials. I think that we're seeing that in Michigan. I think we're seeing that with, quite frankly, Kamala Harris right now. Um, So there is a gender dynamics there. Often it's generational and education level as well, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, uh, you know, it's a difficult dynamic that I'm not sure anyone kind of has figured out how how to deal with.
1: Listen, brother, you are a, a great combination of working class sensibilities and brilliance at what you do. And I don't think you get the credit you probably deserve for the Biden success. But the biggest thing is you're also one of the best human beings that I know in politics or out of politics. And I'm proud to call you a friend. And I'm really, really proud of what you've accomplished. It's it's a, such a wonderful story. So thank you for spending time with me
2: well thank you for you know your friendship and more importantly mentorship and what you've meant to my career so i look forward to getting together in person
1: yes sir at a cubs game sounds good we'll see what we'll see how much of the team is left by the time we get there all right thanks so much john anzalone thanks brother great to be with you
0: thank you for listening to the axe files brought to you by the university of chicago institute of politics and cnn audio the executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.